Welcome to the Health Advisor Companion Podcast. My name is Hamza Drabu, partner at GAC Beechcroft. Today's podcast compares the national approaches to the COVID-19 pandemic in Israel and the UK, as healthcare systems continue to improvise and adapt to the challenges presented. I'm delighted to have Sam Cronin with us today, Healthcare Innovation Manager at the UK Israel Tech Hub. Sam works with multinationals and the NHS on their innovation needs and building strategic partnerships between Israel and the UK. Sam, it's great to have you here. It's good to see you again and thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you do at the UK Israel Tech Hub? Sure. The UK Israel Tech Hub is a British government initiative set up about nine years ago. And what we do, we are active in a variety of sectors, healthcare, smart cities, mobility, fintech. And what we do is we work with the largest corporations in the UK to help identify and understand their innovation needs and their tech challenges and to identify suitable Israeli startups for strategic partnerships. And of course, in the healthcare sector, this also extends beyond the multinational corporations to the NHS and and the entire sort of healthcare and life science ecosystem of the UK. That's great. Thanks, Sam. And it was great to host one of those breakfasts some time ago. It feels like when we were in the Walbrook together, I'm talking to a number of those Israeli companies looking to enter into the UK. And I hope that we can get one of those breakfast sessions on again in the not so distant future. Absolutely. In the UK, there's been a significant focus on collaboration between healthcare organisations in coordinating the response to the pandemic. And we've seen commissioners and providers of healthcare working together, and we've seen local authorities as well, sharing data to try and combat the effects of the pandemic. How has collaboration worked in Israel? Because obviously we've seen a lot in the news around how effective the approach has been over in Israel in response to the pandemic. To begin with, one of the things that's important to clarify is sort of how healthcare is structured in Israel. Israel has four what are called sick funds, and everyone is legally mandated to belong to one of them. And of those four sick funds, two of them cover more than half of the population of Israel. Healthcare is free at the point of care for people. You pay for it from your salary, essentially, much like in the UK, where you're paying for it from the taxes. And Israel has a 100% electronic medical record system going back more than 25 years. What this means is that Israel has what people refer to as cradle to the grave data. People don't really move within their healthcare provider. You have these very rich, comprehensive, longitudinal data sets. And what that means is that collaboration is already a much easier process to begin from. When you look at then what happened when COVID hit, firstly, there are fewer other organizations to start getting involved. And secondly, it was just a much smoother process. So Initially, we had the military scientific research department got involved because they're very experienced at coordinating things like this. They were leading on a lot of the early COVID testing and on the trying to develop low cost ventilators. If you remember back last March and April, when there was really this panic around this before we'd found any therapeutics that could potentially help the situation. In addition, you have the ambulance service. Now, the ambulance service in Israel is actually largely funded by donations And it's staffed by volunteers. It's not funded by government. And the ambulance service was doing a lot of the COVID testing in the community. If you were in lockdown and you needed a test, it would be the ambulance who would come to your home to do this testing. So when it comes to that type of thing, the country is already set up in a much more collaborative way. It's a tiny country. It's a population, you know, of 9 million people. It's seven hours to drive north to south. It's 40 minutes to cross at its narrowest point. And also, this is a country that is very used to everyone getting together when there's a crisis going on. And what that means is that when this happened, everyone just got on board and started collaborating and did what needed to happen to get things done. 
that's great and i think the idea of ambulances coming out and doing testing is one that certainly i think the population the volume that we're talking about is very different to the point that that is something that might work in that context and certainly wouldn't work in the uk given the infrastructure what technology did you see being deployed thinking about things like virtual appointments and so on that infrastructure i imagine is already well developed in israel but how did you see that play out during the pandemic you're absolutely right. Israel was already well ahead of the UK with digital services in healthcare and telemedicine. To give you an example, half the time, if I want something, I don't really need to see a doctor. I can just request it through the app. And what we saw was a ramping up of these digital services. At the same time, we've also seen similar problems that have faced the UK and many other countries of people not going to doctors in the same way that they were before. This fear of catching something that led to this fallout whether this was people, you know, having that mole checked or that lump checked or whatever it was that was going on, people that were having heart attacks at home because they weren't going into the hospital when things were happening, all these types of things. So there really has been this very similar challenges, but our starting point was already ahead of the UK. And really what it's meant is that there's just been a ramping up of these digital services. And that was a much easier thing to do because we weren't needing to start from, you know, square one, we were already further ahead. And it's worked by and large. I don't want to say, well, because things can always be better. I don't want to say bad because it could always be worse. I'm very, very cautious to criticize anyone or anything really in a crisis like this when no one could have predicted and everyone's kind of winging it and making it up each day as they go and trying to come up with innovative ideas and solutions. Yeah, there's been a huge evolution, hasn't there, in terms of where we were a year ago to where we are now, just in terms of knowledge and the vaccine rollout. So absolutely agree. One of the things that we found here is just to ensure that there was enough space in terms of intensive care units, that elective care was effectively postponed for some time. And we we have a huge elective care backlog at the moment over here. Have you had anything similar in Israel? And how has the sort of show been kept on the road whilst dealing with both COVID patients and other patients without COVID that need support? It's been kept on the road. Let me start off by saying that, you know, this is not an area that I know a huge amount about as a caveat. Again, it's very similar challenges that have been faced by healthcare organizations everywhere. One of the interesting things, you know, that was happening early on, I heard about how all these sorts of problems of patients that were, and this is the not necessarily on the elective area, okay, patients that yeah. needed to receive their chemotherapy, but hospitals were now risk zones for them. And so early on, one of the hospitals was toying with uh, putting essentially chemotherapy vans on the street outside the hospital so that patients could go there. They could have their blood work done there to check that their system was robust enough to receive the treatment and then would receive it in this, essentially the back of a lorry, not quite as dodgy as that might sound, um, and really trying to come up with very creative solutions to be able to continue, but accepting that things have changed. When you get to elective procedures, you know, these have all been trimmed down to a degree. At the same time, because of the digital state of the system, And the country, things have been able to progress, you know, at a a very different pace. I've been able to see doctors throughout this process as I've needed to, and that hasn't really been a problem. If I need to see a doctor in person, or if I want to have a telephone call or a video conference or whatever, those are options that are available. That's the thing, really. It's about capacity. And I think that that's been one of the issues that the health system over here has been finding ways to protect. And it sounds like there are a whole range of new models of care that Israel have been deploying. I think that, you know, as we know, one of the the main challenges coming out of this with this huge backlog is going to be how we manage prioritization. And this is going to be a huge problem. And I can anticipate this is going to be an even more controversial challenge in the UK than in Israel, where there's very much a concern over not just being fair, but appearing to be fair 
And Israelis, I think, don't have quite those same concerns, for better or for worse. And there's still, you know, always going to be this challenge of prioritization of patients and how we deal with this. But I feel that even saying the words prioritization of patients in the UK is a controversial thing to say. The notion that some patients are ahead of others. And there's going to be huge fallouts and backlog of this. Yeah, and the prioritization point is one that absolutely goes to the heart of the vaccine program because clearly there needs to be a number of cohorts and steps that are taken to make sure that you're protecting the most vulnerable first, etc. And I think in both cases, we've seen some successes in the vaccine rollout, but it'd be interesting to hear your take on how things are going in Israel on that front. Look, I don't want to be controversial, but I am going to say that I am very proud, let's say, of how Israel has managed it. I was vaccinated very early on, not for being in a high-risk group, but simply because there were leftover doses at the end of the day. And this was the norm from the beginning is there's no skipping of cues or anything like that, but waste is even worse. And this was something that was made very clear is not a single dose should be wasted. Even when I went and had my vaccine, the paramedic who was administering it told me that they were using new, more accurate syringes that were enabling them to get six doses from a bottle instead of five. So, you know, there's really very interesting stuff going on here. And how that rollout happened, I was told yesterday morning that the country has now reached about 5 million people vaccinated. We've got about a million to go of the adults who can be vaccinated. Very different situation to the UK of really trying to prioritize and manage. Of course, we all saw, you know, what was going on on uh, Pfizer, for example, saying to wait three weeks. The British government opting for 12 weeks. Pfizer eventually coming back and saying six weeks was the limit of where they were comfortable. One of the huge benefits, though, is how the data coming out of Israel has been able to inform other countries. Now, this has all been possible because of Israel having this rich, comprehensive electronic medical record system, which means that the country has effectively acted as what I suspect is probably actually the world's largest real world evidence study ever, where we're able to see, you know, what happens really when a vaccine is tested in a, in a real population, in a real world setting not when everyone is in lockdown, so on and so forth. And we were able to start feeding this data into the UK, for example, to reinforce and reinform the government's position on how long it was acceptable to wait, what was the efficacy of one dosage after a period of time. And I'll tell you, you find that you also start feeling an element of moral responsibility in this. I went out about two weeks ago and had my first face-to-face meeting in 10 months. And four days later, I found that I was sick. And I was sat there thinking, you know, is this flu or is this COVID? It didn't really matter to me. I, you know, I didn't feel awful. I didn't feel like I was going to die. But what I felt was I should actually go for a COVID test because they, whoever they is, need to have the data of did the vaccine protect me from COVID and attenuate its effect? Or was this just something else? And as it turned out, it was something else. But I went and did that test because I really felt that it was important to support this and that this data is then being used to shape. And and the UK is, you know, one country that's in quite a luxurious position in the grand scheme of of nations around the world. And there are many other countries that are in much worse condition and with much lower access to these things. Absolutely. International collaboration has been a vital part of successfully dealing with the pandemic. And I think that point around real data repository that you have there through the electronic patient record is really interesting. How important in your view is that sort of international collaboration in the context of dealing with the pandemic? And I guess just from where you're sitting, and maybe the answer is no, but have you seen any good examples of that from your vantage point? I think it's vitally important. Collaboration is, in my opinion, is always important. I'm a fan of, you know, collective knowledge versus the individual. 
I think that being exposed to different things is always really important. You'll look around the world and you'll notice often academics will have done their studies in different institutions to be exposed to different ways of thinking. And if you want to look at how international collaboration has played out, all you have to do is look at the Pfizer and the BioNTech collaboration here. And not just that, but you know, a lot of the progress that has happened in this situation has happened because of international collaborations. Early on, we were in, I'm not going to say, I don't know if it's an advantage, but COVID hit Israel a few weeks before the UK did. We went into lockdown a few weeks before. And what that meant was we kind of felt like we were in a, some sort of time bubble, watching, experiencing ourselves and looking at the UK and seeing what was going to happen there. And that provided us with a wonderful opportunity to start acting before things had happened. So very early on, we started screening solutions for the UK. By mid-April, I had screened 394 solutions from 267 companies. And we were feeding this stuff to number 10 NHS England, NHS X. Yeah. We sit in an embassy. We were building, you know, collaborations and forging connections between the Ministry of Health of, of both countries. International collaboration doesn't always need to be, you know, around a scientific project. It's knowledge sharing. It's as we've discussed around the data coming from this. And I think that from top to bottom, we're seeing the value of it. The huge challenge, of course, is that international collaborations work best when people can go and see each other and, and sit around a table together and bounce ideas in a way that just isn't quite possible at the moment. And so, of course, you know, creative solutions and everything has had to be come up with for this. But I think that, you know, we only sit where we are today. And I think that is a good position. This is certainly, you know, not where I thought that we would have been six months ago or something. I thought we would be in a worse position than we are today. And I think that that is all achieved by collaborations, which, of course, bring their challenges. It's very interesting to hear about that flow between the UK and Israel that you've been seeing. I think that the more interesting point is, from my side, is how this has affected the culture of innovation in healthcare. Healthcare is an area that is ripe for innovation and really needs innovation. And what we've seen through the pandemic is that innovation is, in healthcare has gone from something that was of interest to something that was a necessity. I understand, obviously, you know, the pressures that are on clinicians and therefore the challenges when it comes to engaging with innovation and learning new technologies and so on and so forth. But really what we've seen is that this is now essential. I was on a call yesterday with a British insurance company, and they were talking to me about how old people now engage with technology in a way that they weren't doing so a year ago, because they have to. Necessity is what drives innovation. And we've really seen this happening within the NHS, this attitude changing on being more open to innovation, open to adopting innovation, trialing innovation, the notion that things don't have to be perfect from the beginning. What's really interesting is seeing the NHS trialing things and then rapidly failing which is yeah. an important part of innovating, but it's just not part of the culture of the NHS. To be honest, it's not part of the culture of the UK so much, where often I feel that British culture is one where if you think you might fail, it's better not to try. Whereas I sit here in Tel Aviv, where the innovation, or the culture around innovation is one that where the shame is in not trying just because you think you might fail. And so that's, we've really seen this paradigm shift in British healthcare from patients who were reticent to use digital services as well, I think, through to, you know, doctors, nurses, administrators, so on and so forth, to understand that this is just how it's going to need to go. Um, I think that's a wonderful thing, because firstly, it needs to happen. I think that one of the questions should always be, do we need to have a person involved in this? And if not, how can we remove that? Because often people make the process, you know, more cumbersome, ultimately. And if we can remove that and, and make it a more streamlined and smoother process, then that's much better. Do you need to call up your GP clinic and speak to the secretary on the phone to book an appointment? Or can you do that through a website or an app? And I think that this is something that's really important. 
And I don't just say that because I sit working in healthcare innovation. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased, but it's inevitable and it has to happen. We've seen digital transformation happening across the board in many other areas. And finally, it's caught on with healthcare. And, and of course, digital transformation is accelerating. I would say that digital transformation is, I think, one of the biggest impacts I've seen across society from the virus and from this pandemic. And I think that it's a wonderful thing that hopefully will last. It should last. The question, do you need to go into the bank to do this or should you be able to do this digitally and, and across healthcare, across everything? Yeah, that burning platform and the shared sense of purpose is something that we've discussed on another podcast around that rapid adoption that we've seen. The question is, will it continue without such a burning platform? I think so. I think this has now lasted. Firstly, the situation is not over. Let's remember that. And this has lasted long enough that it's formed a scar in our collective memories. And the longer it continues, you know, the world is shaped by the youth. And the longer this continues, the more COVID will have been a significant part of their youth and changed things. and, And they will shape the world to come from this. And that's really important to ensure that we continue to drive and develop new innovations. We've spoken now about telemedicine and virtual appointments, but one of the huge challenges around that is that telemedicine is only addressing part of the picture, which is that your doctor needs to be able to see you. You know, there's a lack of remote diagnostic tools available for a doctor to be able to take, let's start first, you know, the biometrics, okay, your pulse, heart rate, you know, your blood pressure, so on and so forth. But you can't forget that there is no substitute for the experience and experienced eyes of a doctor. And I'll tell you, I was talking last night to a British GP, and we were talking about exactly this subject, about the lack of tools for remote diagnostics on patients and how this can be addressed. And he told me a story. He said to me that one of his neighbors was sick and he got a call saying, do you mind if I pop around? And he'd, I think he'd called his doctor or something. He'd had a, a normal teleappointment. And he said, do you mind if I come around? And he popped over and he walked through the door and this chap, the GP, took one look at him and said, you know, we're going to hospital. And it took him to the hospital and it turned out that this fellow needed an operation of some form. And that was that. He took one look and he knew what he was seeing. And what he was seeing was someone who was sick, someone who was not making a big deal over nothing. He said to me, he said, listen, as a GP especially, your patients, you've known them their whole lives. You've watched them grow up. And what phone calls and video appointments miss out on is all the nonverbal signals The chat you have when they're walking in, how are you doing? How are things going? You hear the hesitation in their answers, all these things you pick up on. How are they doing beyond the physical as well? And all of these things are missing. And I'm not sure how we're going to address that side of things because that should never be lost from the experience. But but it really was one of those things that reinforces for you that, you know, we can tout technology all we want, but we've got to make sure that it doesn't come at the cost of other things. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a different model, isn't it? And you're quite right. There will be lots of cues that may well be very, very difficult to pick up through a 2D version of an appointment. We had an interesting discussion with colleagues that work at the Health Innovation Network about the trial of pulse oximetry and how that's been working on a remote monitoring basis and rolling that out and how effective that can be. When you are looking at a country like Israel, where you have that longitudinal data set and that electronic record that sits there at the heart of everything. I think that makes these sorts of remote monitoring solutions potentially really scalable really quickly. I think we have more of a mixed and fragmented version over in the UK. So those sorts of remote monitoring solutions, though, I think could help perhaps alleviate some of those missing cues from the 2D appointments that we're talking about. Yes, but I think that part of the challenge with the UK and remote monitoring technologies, especially some of the things I see coming out of Israel, is that they are 
for the UK, borderline prohibitively expensive. Okay, now the general mindset, some of these devices can cost, you know, a few hundred dollars or more. And I always feel the British mindset is that if it's healthcare and medicine, I'm not paying for it. You know, that, that's covered by the NHS. And that's the joy of the NHS and growing up in that system is that you have that mindset. But it does mean that people are not so willing to go off and spend 300 pounds on a device or something for remote medicine. The question is, could you cobble together five different 10, 20 pound items and still do the same thing? To me, the linchpin of it is going to be the smartphone. We're not quite there yet, but I think that that's going to be what holds the capabilities to do a lot of these things in the future. Because I think that devices that people need to buy and use, and when you're buying a device, that also means that it will inherently go out of date at some point, or you know your device no longer works with the updates and so on and so forth and all these sorts of challenges. I think that being able to gather data from things that people will already have is going to be a monumental shift. It's the same way as how the smartphone enabled us to take five different items we carried around with us, your phone, your camera, your iPod, your notebook, whatever. And now we just get to walk around with one item in our pocket comfortably. I'd imagine that to a degree, this is where things will get also in medicine and healthcare. And that's going to create, you know, uh, an accelerated leap in what can be achieved in telemedicine. Sam, thank you very much for joining us today. It was really interesting to have your perspectives and I look forward to seeing you again soon. You can keep in touch with our content at www.dacbeachcroft.com health advisor for the latest insights, foresights, and thought-provoking articles for health and social care professionals.